Matthew chapter 22 is the passage of scripture that we're in, in our series on the gospel of Matthew entitled, Follow Me. Matthew 22, we're going to begin in verse 15 this morning. And church, I want to thank you so much for just your prayers this week, for John and I as we were away seeking the Lord in prayer ourselves. Um, I was so thankful for John's email where he was just able to articulate uh, to you just our love for you as pastors and the, the heart that we carry for you. Uh, we were earnestly in prayer over the course of three days seeking God for everything that the Holy Spirit was setting on our hearts. And um, we were carrying you on our hearts, praying for you by name, crying out from many different categories. And even this week at Care Group, as you go to Care Group, uh, please be just praying, praying as we seek the Lord during this month of May here, um, just especially um, just for God's wisdom and God's grace on us um, and for the Lord just to move powerfully in our midst as I know you will and as I know you are doing. So thank you for your prayers and for your love for us. And uh, it's such a joy to be your pastors and to be praying for you and the burdens you're carrying on your heart. Matthew chapter 22 is our passage of scripture this morning, and the title of this message is God of the Living. Let's read God's word together. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. And that's seen in Deuteronomy 25. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. And so to the second and the third, down to the seventh, after them all, the woman died. And in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Amazing Jesus. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we just thank you so much for this time together, and thank you for the fact that though our sins are many, your mercy is more. We are so thankful this morning for your shed blood on the cross, and there is more righteousness in Christ than there is sin in us, and I am so thankful, Lord, for the way you have opened up our heart to believe. Lord, if there's anybody here who hasn't turned from their sins and repented and trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, Please, Holy Spirit, move in power and open up their eyes to believe. Open up their eyes to see that they might come to know you like we have come to know you as both Lord and Christ. And we are so thankful that you have opened up our eyes. Lord, open up the eyes of our heart again. Holy Spirit, illuminate your word and and cause us to be built and strengthened by it. Lord, I pray you would feed us this morning nourishment through the Word of God, and that you would bless us and strengthen us and help us to see Jesus more clearly and worship Him with even more passion. We pray for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So good to see you. So good to be with you. 
in verse 15, it starts out here, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And this first point here is entitled setting the trap, setting the trap. It's such a sad verse here, verse 15, because Jesus has just gotten done speaking and addressing the Pharisees with his third of three parables of judgment where he's warning them of what would come if they do not come to him to have life. And verse 15 just shows their response to his invitation to come to him. Instead of repentance and asking Jesus what must they do to be saved, and believing on Him, they actually plot against Jesus to do Him and His cause harm. Uh, brothers and sisters, it, it's been in my mind a lot, this, this phrase of Jesus came to His own. The Jewish people, the people of Israel, His chosen people. He came to His own and His own did not receive Him. And here's an evidence of that here in verse 15. The Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Him. In his words, they became even more cunning in their planning to seek to just trap and entrap Jesus so that they can do him harm. And I I moved here as I think about this passage and, and this situation here of setting a trap for Jesus. And it's an important point, but one I think we need to take to heart. You can be religious looking and yet not be working for Jesus, but against him. Sobering. And all of us need to take it to heart. Just because you're religious looking, just because you go to church, or just because you go to the temple like the Pharisees did all the time, it doesn't make you repentant toward God. Necessarily. It does not mean that your heart is right with God. And that you believe in His Son, Jesus Christ, the promised one who was to come prophesied about in Isaiah 53 as the suffering servant who would be sent and who would come and die on the cross for sinners and suffer the wrath of God in the place of sinners. And anybody who believes in Him won't perish, but have have everlasting life. John the Baptist prophesied and said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, pointing to Jesus, and yet they still would not receive Him. Salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ. And in turning away from our old lives in order to follow Him. We have to turn away from our old life. For many, our old life represented sort of outward and outward open rebellion and vileness that we needed to turn away from. For others, their old life can represent the trappings of religiosity and and mere outward form and ceremonialism where maybe even you honored God with your lips, but your heart was far from Him. What we're learning in this Gospel is that you can go to hell with the pretense of religion just as fast as you can go to hell with outwardly obvious sins. We have to turn away from lifestyles of open and obvious sin, certainly. And we have to turn away from lifestyles of religion when that religious way of living keeps you from following Jesus. Religion can keep someone away from Jesus. Just like open sin and open rebellion and outright worldliness and wickedness can. Both can be without Christ, and both can be the tools of the evil one. Here you have a group of people who are in rebellion against Jesus, actually plotting the murder of the Son of God. And they're actually thinking they're doing the will of God. While seeking to destroy God's only Son and God's cause. It displays just how blindly all of us can be as human beings and the need we all have for the miracle of the new birth, to be born again, to be regenerate by the power of the Holy Spirit. Some of you remember Mickey Connolly, the senior pastor of our sister church down in Charlotte, North Carolina, who loves our church and comes and visits here frequently. Down south, Mickey talks about how hard it can be to evangelize people who do not feel that they even need to be evangelized. The Bible Belt has many professing believers in Jesus 
who live lives against Jesus, but think that they're good with God because they are occasional or regular churchgoers. Matt Chandler actually talks about how it's possible for people, this is sobering, to, to be inoculated with a Jesus vaccine, if you will. So that you get just enough of Jesus to make you immune from ever truly getting Him and following Him as your Lord and Savior and taking Him as your Lord on your own. And that imagery of being inoculated, it's, it's a powerful one. To, to know the name of Christ but not have the reality of salvation within you is something we all have to take stock of. But here are the Pharisees had all the Word of God right in front of them, and had the Word of God in the flesh right in front of them, and yet they plot to murder God's only Son. And it's not just in the South. You can evangelize a lot of people around here in the Reading area who have gone to church their whole lives, can't you? But who are not truly repentant or trusting in Jesus and His finished work on the cross for their salvation. They faithfully carry out religious practices because it's the tradition, and they've always done that. And they have never personally submitted their lives to Jesus in repentance and faith. If you tell them, hey, listen, you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and that their religious practices will not save them, you may get a hostile reaction just as strong as you would get from anybody. And here the Pharisees, they, they don't bend, even though Jesus has pled with them through the parables, the last three. They don't soften their heart, and they're not willing to come to Jesus in repentance and in faith, but rather they engineer an even more cunning trap, seeking to flatter Jesus and then bait Him, so He'll bite and give an answer that will cause His own self-destruction. The Pharisees are real smart in this one because they don't go themselves because now they know that they're openly in opposition to Jesus because they've listened to the parables and they, they get it, but they actually send envoys, disciples of their own making, most likely not dressed up as the Pharisees dressed up yet, to go and be envoys of their message so that their appearance would appear innocent and sincere to Jesus. And they also send simultaneously... Herodians, who normally are not in allegiance with the Pharisees. They normally hate one another. But because the Pharisee disciples are, they're zealously loyal to Israel, and the Herodians, they're loyal to Rome. But the Pharisees crafted this group perfectly and asked this exact question to seek to catch Jesus, because they knew that if Jesus, like they hoped would, say that, no, you don't need to pay taxes to Rome. The Herodians, who were zealous for Rome, would take Jesus, arrest Him for rebellion and insurrection against the Roman Empire, and the Pharisees would get to watch Jesus be slaughtered, and their own hands could remain clean in the eyes of the people, and they wouldn't lose face or lose power in the eyes of the people, and that's what they're burdened about here. They still want to get rid of Jesus, but they want to do it while keeping their own hands and guilt clean so that they can still retain their power in the eyes of the Jewish people as a whole. Because if you remember, they came to him before with a religious question, and Jesus answered them and said, hey, listen, John's baptism, was that from heaven or from men? I'll ask you a question. And they knew that if they said, oh no, John's baptism was only from man, that the people would rebel because they knew John to be a prophet of God. And the Pharisees knew that if we answer that way, if we tell the truth of what we really think, we're going to lose all credibility before the people. We're going to lose all power. And it was about power. It was about holding on to power. And so here the Pharisees craft this really clever way to stay in power and still get Jesus killed. You've got to recognize how insidious this is. And it's a picture, not just of the heart of Pharisees, brothers and sisters, but the hearts of us as sinners, we devise ways to sink further into our rebellion. And we all need to take stock of that and not allow passages like this to fuel our self-righteousness, but let it produce only shame in ourselves and the need for us to go freshly to the foot of the cross and repent and believe and humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and not let it empower us to make us think that we're better people 
by nature, when we really are not, if we're different, it's only because grace has made us to differ. And I'm so thankful for amazing grace, aren't you? So thankful that God has sent His Son to save us. There's no end to our plots and our scheming by nature to want Christ out of our lives. I want you gone. If you love Jesus, my friend, will you thank Him right now? Because it's only the mercy of God that you love Him like you do. We are all by nature children of wrath. But God has made us alive together with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions and sin. And now, you know what? As Ephesians 4, or as 1 John 4 says, we are the children of God. But for Jesus, you know how sad it must have been, huh, brothers and sisters? To have his own people treating him like this. He's here to lay his life down for them. To rescue the lost sheep of Israel. And here they are, wanting him dead. To be living moment by moment, on your way to the cross, to suffer as a substitute in the place of these people who hate you, and to have them hunting you down, plotting deviously to entrap you, so they can bring about your demise all the swifter. Oh, man of sorrows. Familiar with suffering. Acquainted with grief. Thank you, Jesus, for going through all of that, that we might be sitting here this morning saved. Aren't you so glad, church? Aren't you so glad? So setting the trap was point one. Point two is avoiding avoiding the Pharisee trap. Avoiding the Pharisee trap. No one avoids traps and ensnares people in their own traps better than Jesus. And there, there's, we can read this and almost just think, my goodness, you're genius. And he is. I mean, he shows his omniscience here because they come at him with the most crafty schemes and they end up walking away looking like the fools every single time. They try to make him lose credibility and everybody who comes at him ends up walking away losing their credibility. And what's crazy about it is we would do that if we could. We would do it with malice in our hearts back. Jesus has no malice. He's just speaking the truth to them. And so they come and they ask this question about the tax. And they were thinking here, when Jesus, and they're asking him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They're thinking, the Pharisees, that he's going to say no. And instead, he answers, essentially, yes. But in a way that still upholds the need for the people of God to carry out their duty to God as well. Jesus answers this question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not in verse 18? But Jesus is aware of their malice. He can read our hearts. He knows the heart of man. Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. We are to carry out our duty both to God and to man. That's what Jesus is saying here. Both to the church and to the state. Martin Luther, speaking about this answer from Jesus, says, There he catches them in their own trap. The pointing to the image and the inscription on the coin furnishes the questioners with ocular demonstration of the actual existence and practical recognition of Caesar's sway. And from these, Jesus infers not merely the lawfulness, but the duty of paying to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Namely, the money which shows by the stamp it bears the legitimacy of the existing rule. But he also recognizes at the same time the necessity of attending to their theocratic duties, or their duties unto God, 
their duties unto the church or the temple, which are not to be regarded as in any way compromised because of their political circumstances. So, regardless of political circumstances, regardless of what government we are ever under, we are called to still fulfill our duty to God, while at the same time fulfilling the laws of the land. Romans 13 is a great elaboration on this. You can read that as well. But Jesus very aptly and succinctly summarizes the way we are to operate as Christians. Luther goes on to say, the reply of Jesus is this, you ought to do both things. Both. You ought to be subject to God and to Caesar as well. One duty is inseparable from the other. Thus our Lord rises above the alternative, which was based on theocratic notions of a one-sided and degenerate character. This is what marked the zealots. They said, let's rebel against Rome. That's why they hated tax collectors, because they represented Rome getting their money. The zealots were trying to rise up militarily and wield zeal in the name of the cause of the duty of God, but they were neglecting their duty to man. Jesus would correct them and say, no, you need to pay taxes to Caesar. You need to be a good citizen of the empire of Rome. That was absolutely would have incensed the zealots and the Pharisees. But he also says that you need to zealously uphold your duties to God. You can't allow the government you're under to be an excuse for you why you don't commit to following God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You maintain both at the same time. There's no revolutions needed in relation to followership of Jesus. You know, it's important to note here, and I think it's, it's one that we need to really take to heart again and again and again, not just in our outward conduct and in our attitudes, Christians should be the very best citizens of the state in every government that they are in all around the world. It doesn't mean it's easy. Under the Roman Empire, there were Christians that were martyred and slaughtered because of their commitment to obey God rather than men. When it comes down to it, we've got to stand with God rather than men. But when there's not an issue of principle there, like when they're telling us you can't proclaim the name of Christ any longer, we are called to Fear God and honor the emperor. It's a real apt description in the epistles. Fear God, honor the emperor. And actually, the prayers and intercession also need to be lifted up. We're called to respect. We're called to walk in holiness and in honor in relation to our attitudes and also our conduct to the state. Christians should be the very best citizens of the state and every government that they're in all around the world. We should pay taxes and fulfill our duty both to the government and to God. We should pray for our leaders in local and in national government. So thankful for this. Uh, Someone had sent me a sheet where there's just key national leaders and key local leaders, and I have it, and we'll pray for that. And this past uh, week, John and I enjoyed a, a precious time of prayer where we just prayed for our governmental leaders, national and local And when you do that, you sense God's pleasure because you're obeying the word of the Lord. We should have a we should not have a reputation for being disobedient or arrogant against the government or rebellious to either God or government. Financially, we should render our taxes to government and also render to God our tithes and offerings and render our time and our energy both to God and to man. All that we are called to render unto Caesar, render unto Him. And all that we are called upon by God and His Word to render unto Him, we should render unto God. We should do both at all times. Men and women who embrace duty and fulfill our duties before God and before man. That's what Jesus is saying here. And they were just silenced by this argument, because the Herodians had nothing to take Jesus away over, because they walked away saying, hey, this guy's saying pay taxes to Rome. That's what we wanted to hear. You see the the righteousness of Christ. The Pharisees and those loyal 
to their zeal for Israel would have walked away, and they also would have been satisfied. Be zealous for God and fulfill all of your duties to God. And they would have been a little incensed by the charge that you need to do a better job being a citizen. Uh, that was really a, a great struggle for the people of Israel at this time. They were happy to have Jesus coming into Jerusalem as a Savior from Roman oppression. They didn't feel like they needed Him for what He came to do, which was to die on the cross for sinners, to save us from a much greater and much more eternal oppression, the oppression of Satan as we were enslaved to sin. But thank God, Jesus delivered us from that greater oppression through His death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. Aren't you so thankful for Jesus and all that He's done for you? Oh, I love Him. Love Him so much. I was talking last night, I had the opportunity to preach at a singles retreat from one of our sister churches. And I was reflecting on that song by Mercy Me, you know. What will I do when I see Jesus? Will I dance before you, Jesus? Or in all of you be still? Do you love that song too? I love that song. And I was just reflecting with that group and just thinking, you know, if I'm in the back and Jesus is in a crowd but up toward the front, I guess I just got to warn you, I'm going to be pushing through. I'm going to be pushing through to get there. And you'll be feeling me push. And I, my whole bird, I think what I'll probably end up doing is I'll, I'll pull a Luke 7 on him and I'll just probably fall on my knees and grab his ankles and just start weeping my eyes out in gratitude over him dying for a wretch like me. <laughs> I won't be able to dry, his, dry my tears with my hair though because the uh, hair's a little too short. Maybe I need to grow it long again like it was back in college. I'll have to show you guys a picture of me back in college. I look like Jimmy Morrison from The Doors, people said. My hair was like a wild, crazy thing. So, mom and dad, they'll tell you stories. And they got pictures too, but I probably shouldn't have said that. They love to sneak those pictures out every once in a while when people are over their house. Uh, to my great embarrassment, I've got some pictures that I don't want you guys to get hold of. <laughs> Why did I say that? That was foolish. <laughs> some of you probably have already seen them, so what am I talking about? Uh, we're all family here anyway. And John Shell, he's bad with that too, uh, getting a hold of them and getting at me with them. We once had a leaders meeting and John uh, rang my doorbell and ran away and left a big picture that my mom and dad had of me back in high school with the hair. And uh, I was a little bit thinner and a little bit more muscular. (laughs) And John just wrote on a piece of paper, Ichabod, the glory has departed. Indeed, John. Indeed. You little rascal. I'm going to have to get you back. This is how our church has been built. This is how our church planning team, when we were sent out, this is what they were like. John and Kathy Shell, watch out for them. They are dangerous. Andrew and David's diapers filled up for about a month. He hid in the backseat of my car in the wintertime. And I didn't know it was there. And I'm the only one driving back and forth to work. And I'm smelling something all month. And the more I turned up the heat, the worse it was. <laughs> Yeah, you too. <laughs> Talk about traps. No, oh, it's fun. This is fun being together with you. Fun laughing together, isn't it? We have need for laughter. It's good medicine for our souls. Point three, he avoided the Pharisees' trap, but he also avoided the Sadducees' trap as well. And this is reflected here in verses 23 through 33. Let's read that together again. The same day the Sadducees came to him. So he's got it coming from all sides. This is the Wednesday right before he died. So tomorrow, tomorrow he's heading to Gethsemane. They They ought to have been honoring him. Not trying to hunt him down. And make his life more a man of sorrows. But he endured all of that in order to save us, my friends. The Sadducees came to him who said that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said, 
If a man dies and has no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. This is the law of leveret marriage reflected in Deuteronomy 25. You see this in the book of Ruth with Boaz. He is the kinsman redeemer. He's actually fulfilling this obligation um, in order that Malon might continue his line. And uh, this was something in the law. But what's important to note here about the Sadducees was that they only believed that the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, were the Scriptures. And they were zealously devoted to the first five books, the, the books of Moses. And that's why they say to him, Teacher, Moses said, is because to them that was the Word of God. All the books of the Bible after Deuteronomy were basically, in their eyes, viewed as just commentary on the Pentateuch. They didn't regard those as the Word of God. So that's important to note here in relation to the Sadducees and why they come to Jesus, and they bring Him an issue from Deuteronomy. They regarded themselves as the purists, the literalists, who really were the ones who were the preservers of true religion. The Pharisees really worshipped rabbinical tradition and extra-biblical teachings and turned it into the 600-plus laws and made it what they were. And the Pharisees hated the Sadducees because the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, but the Pharisees did. It's also important that socially, you know, that the Sadducees were more like the aristocrats of this society in Judaism. The Pharisees were more of like a lay leadership, a very zealous lay leadership, but they were very much amongst the commoners, very much more connected with the people. The Sadducees were the elite. And so he got it from the Pharisees, and then he gets it here from the Sadducees, and they come asking him a question, a specific question from the law. And this question here to them, they thought, the Pharisees couldn't get him, we're going to get him. Because they felt like this was the unanswerable question. So we are going to give him like a sphinx, a question, and there's no way he's going to be able to answer this. Because they had posed this question to the Pharisees time and time again who did believe in the resurrection because they believed the rest of the Old Testament were the Scriptures. And there's many references to the resurrection throughout the Old Testament, but just not many references in the first five books. And they would just stop and, and just snuff out any argument that the Pharisees would bring to them about the resurrection by countering everything according to the first five books of the Old Testament. So these two were in opposition to one another. And they think... Jesus believes in the resurrection. He's been prophesying that he's going to be raised from the dead. We're going to stump him. And we're going to prove him to be not a teacher of the law. And we're going to prove him to be ignorant of God's word. Not too smart. And they bring the case. If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh, and after them the woman died. And in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. And you can just imagine just this snide look on their faces of, we got you. And brothers and sisters, they had reason to hate him. Jesus cleared out the temple earlier this week. The Sadducees were keepers of the temple. They were those who sold the sacrifices and retained the profits from the sales in the temple courts. And when Jesus drove out the money makers in the temple... On Passover week, that was a lot of a hit in the wallet. They were not happy with him. Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey and people praising him with shouts of Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the people all excited about Jesus delivering them from Roman oppression. The Sadducees didn't want to be delivered from Roman oppression. Their positions of power were maintained because... They wanted the Sadducees to help keep order. And they saw to it that that was profitable for them. And so the Sadducees were just happy as things were. They didn't want to see things change. Jesus represented a change and they wanted Him out of the way so they could once again and keep their power. 
So they also come and flatter him with a condescending flattery. They call him teacher. When their, their goal is actually to destroy his credibility as a teacher. And they only reveal their own ignorance of the Scripture and their own ignorance of the power of God here when Jesus takes them on in reverse order. First, He reveals their ignorance of the power of God. Jesus says, You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. The reason the Sadducees thought that this question was unanswerable was because they believed that there was no resurrection. And the Sadducees believed that Jesus, similar to the Pharisees, probably believed that everyone remained in exactly the same state as they were in when they died. That's what the Pharisees believed, and they assumed that that's exactly what Jesus believed. If all eight would appear in the resurrection exactly in the same condition and circumstances in which they had died, the Sadducees thought, how could their marriage relationships possibly be reconciled? And this dilemma proved the idea of the absurdity of the resurrection of the dead to be absurd in their eyes. And they believed that they had Jesus stumped. They assumed that nothing changes after you die. And that that truth would cause Jesus to be trapped. But things do change at the resurrection. And Jesus knows that because He's God. And He informs them of what's going to take place. Jesus basically says, you guys don't know what you're talking about. He points out to them that at the resurrection, things change from what they were like here on earth. You are no longer going to marry or be given in marriage. And also, your body's going to change as well. The resurrection is going to happen. The resurrection is real. Your body is going to become a spiritual body, like the angels' bodies are spiritual bodies. That's what Jesus is saying to them here. And you don't know the power of God. It's nothing for God to raise up a body from death and transform that earthly, perishable body into an imperishable, glorious body. A spiritual body. It's nothing for God to do that. You don't know the power of God. You don't know my power. I say, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus comes. And had I not specified Lazarus, all the dead would have been raised. 1 Corinthians 15 says... The Apostle Paul now speaking. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Listen carefully. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen. And to each kind of seed its own body. Not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead." What is sown is perishable. That's what we have. Perishable bodies right now. But guess what? That's not always how they're going to be. The power of God, let it come home to you what your future is going to look like because that's what Jesus is getting at here. What is raised is imperishable. Oh, and by the way, real quick, imperishable, you know what that means? Enduring forever. You are going to have a body that's going to endure forever. At the resurrection, it is sown, Paul says, in dishonor, our earthly bodies, perishable. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And if there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. We will have spiritual bodies in the new heavens and new earth when we get to heaven.
It will not be a disembodied existence floating around in the clouds like a mist. You will have a body. And bodies are good. That's good to have. When Christ comes back to take us home, the dead in Christ will rise. The bodies will come up out of the ground just like Jesus's did, but they will be transformed just like Jesus's was. It's going to be awesome. This is a description of God's power. And Jesus is saying, your bodies are going to be spiritual bodies like the angels' bodies are. We're not going to be angels. We'll be different. We'll still be human beings, but with spiritual bodies, with imperishable. Oh, by the way, did I say this yet? Enduring forever. No pain. No suffering. None of that. It's gone forever. No tears. No more crying. And Jesus is saying, you don't know the power of God. God can do that. You don't believe in the resurrection from the dead? You err because you do not know the power of God, Jesus said. John MacArthur writing about this says that the relationship of marriage is beautiful and it's divinely ordained. But it is an entirely earthly and temporal institution except for the fact that the relationship between Christ and His bride and the church will be married all the way throughout eternity. So sexual relationships, reproduction and childbirth have no place in heaven because there's no new life born there as there is on earth. Nor will there be any exclusive relationships in heaven because everyone will be perfectly and intimately related to everyone else. Including to the living God Himself. We are all one in Christ. It's a mystery to us now, brothers and sisters, but our marriages here in this earth, they are simply a picture of the glorious one flesh relationship between Christ and His church that will endure throughout all of eternity. And it can seem odd to us now to think of not being married in heaven, but this is just a small pale picture of the glories and the joys and the pleasures that are going to be at God's right hand forevermore when we get to heaven. It's going to be better than anything we've ever experienced in terms of closeness and intimacy and, and joy and fellowship and communion with one another and with God better than we've ever or ever could imagine. And in heaven, men will be like angels. They will be equally spiritual in nature, equally deathless. I love that word, deathless. Equally glorified and equally eternal. It actually says in 1 Corinthians 15 that star, we will shine like the stars. C.S. Lewis commenting on this actually says that if we could see right now each one of us and what we will look like in our glorified, resurrected bodies in heaven, we would be so dazzled by the radiance of one another. We'd almost be tempted to get down on our knees and worship one another if we could just see it right now. Because you're going to shine. You're going to shine forever, brothers and sisters. Those of you who are saved. I can't wait to get there. And the greatest of all is going to be being there together with all of you. And guess who we get to be with? Jesus. Oh, man. I can't wait. Can't wait. Can't wait. Can't wait. Jesus shows the ignorance of their understanding of the power of God. He also shows their ignorance of the Scriptures. And you've got to understand, when Jesus shows the Sadducees their ignorance of the Scriptures, when they prided themselves on being the keepers of purity of Scripture, the literalists, they were like the fundamentalists of the day. They were the ones who kind of looked at the Pharisees as even liberal because they're the ones that really hold to the true Word of God. And Jesus one-ups them on knowledge. Oh, this was a crusher to their pride. Because Jesus points out to them, and guess where He points this out from? The Pentateuch. You think you know the Scriptures? Listen, I'm omniscient. as <laughs> the second person of the Trinity, so this is a no-brainer, right? But, just you don't know the Scriptures. He points out to them, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Remember the burning bush? Remember Moses? 
who you just pointed to me? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, present tense, I am. It shows that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Okay, wait a second. Abraham died. Uh, Yes, and he's alive. Isaac died. Uh, Yes, and he's alive. There is a resurrection. He shuts down their error. Jacob died, yes, but he's alive. He is the God of these men. And he points it out to them from the Scriptures, and that silenced them. They came to blow him up and expose him as a teacher ignorant of the Scriptures and ignorant of truth, and instead their own ignorance and their own arrogance was crushed and exposed. You know, rather than humble themselves here and say, you know what, we actually thought we gave you the impossible question and you just answered it. Uh, we're going to get down on our knees and worship you. They also likewise went away. And you know what? When they gathered and took counsel together, the Pharisees and Sadducees, there was one place where they had no problem uniting. And that was, let's kill this guy. They should have worshipped him. Instead, they hunted him down in the garden to kill him. The point that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it shows us two things, and we're going to close after these two points. But listen carefully, because these are precious truths. You are alive after you die. When you die, you are absent from your earthly body, but you are immediately present with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5. And at the day of judgment, there will be a reuniting with your body. When the dead in Christ rise, your body will be raised, a spiritual body that you will receive from God. Like Jesus' spiritual body, And you will enjoy that forever. No more pain. No more sickness. No more sadness. Only eternal joy that never stops growing and never ends. And as it's never ending, you will be enjoying enjoying your imperishable spiritual body. Uh, By the way, did I mention the word imperishable means enduring forever? (laughs) It's good news. It would be bad news if it was these bodies. But the fact that it's going to be an imperishable body, a resurrected, glorified body, where there'll be no more suffering anymore, that is good news, sufferer. That is good news for me. As my wife has been suffering with 17 years of chronic pain incessantly every day, I'm looking forward to heaven and dancing around there with her. And you know what? Even though I won't be married to her in heaven, I'm sure God's going to let me like stay next to her. (laughs) and i'm gonna get to be sitting next to you too i'm sure i mean what we build here together it's going to be reflected in heaven I, i pray to god on judgment day i'm able to be there as you're receiving your rewards for your faithful labors all that you've labored here to do for jesus and as as you are being rewarded and hearing well done good and faithful servant i pray that john and i be able to be there and we'll be able to all together as a congregation be there to say we saw them live it out up close and personal, and to rejoice and celebrate the God who made it all possible. Oh, heaven's going to be even better than all that. We can imagine, but it's going to be better than we can even imagine. And I can't wait to enjoy it together with you. So look forward to your resurrected body, imperishable, enduring forever, a spiritual body, And also, I am the God, listen to this, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. You know what that speaks to? God is a personal God to His people. He doesn't just love us as a group. <laughs> you can rightly say, I am the God of Sibietter. 
I don't deserve that. But the fact that all three patriarchs are pointed out by Jesus, by name, each one of them are known by God, and He calls them their God. Possessive. Mine. This is my child, my precious one. He's not just Abraham's God, Isaac's God, and Jacob's God. He's your God. I want you to fill your name in on that blank. Because if you are a believer in Christ and you've repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, you're His. I'd like to have the worship band return. And as they quietly come, I want you just to pay careful attention as I read Isaiah chapter 43. And I pray that this moves you and comforts you as you're considering your life right now. Listen carefully to the Word of God as they come. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have called you by name. You are mine. When he died on the cross, he knew he was dying for you. So great was his love, he willingly gave up his life so that you might be made alive forevermore and not suffer the second death in hell as unbelievers will. He has been so merciful to you. He's been so good. And He's worthy of our worship and our praise. Let's stand.